sometimes when we read the Bible, um, it's, it's easy to read it um, not necessarily as fiction. We know it's 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 not a it's it's true, but sometimes it's hard for us to really jump into the times that it's writing about. Um, but I was thinking about the times that we're living in right now, and um, and you're getting good, you know, you can see what's coming. Um, uh, it, it's the times that we're living, but it's actually really interesting that we're looking at chapter nine, because this is a time where the church was under extreme pressure, and, um, and it was not an easy time for the church. So we're going to uh, look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 31, if you've got a Bible. Um, uh, we're not going to read, we're going to read it through in three different parts as we go through this morning, um, but it's always, always good to be able to refer to it um, yourself. So I've entitled this talk, which for most believers, this is a very famous, famous passage. I've entitled this talk, Pharisee Interrupted. Most people have heard of the person Richard Dawkins, um, very famous atheist professor um, at Oxford University, um, debated many Christians, um, and wrote the book, The God Delusion. And um, uh, my friend Pam, she, um, she had a real burden, was thinking about having a burden for Vladimir Putin, praying for him. She had a real burden for Richard Dawkins. And um, she decided that not, she didn't really want to debate him about faith, but she wanted to have an opportunity to meet Richard and to help him to encounter something of God's love. And she decided that she wanted to pray for an opportunity to meet Richard Dawkins and to give him a sense somehow that the God of all things that he doesn't believe in loves him passionately and unconditionally. If you'd ever met my friend Pam, you wouldn't be surprised that this was an aspiration that she had. Kind of crazy. I know at least one person here knows Pam and knows how true this is. Crazy, crazy person. So, um, so she was praying fervently for an opportunity to meet Richard Dawkins. And uh, one day she was at an event at Oxford Uni. Um, lots of people were in the room. And she noticed across the other side of the room that Richard Dawkins was at the event. She said to her friend that was with her, let's go and see Richard and tell him that God loves him. And my friend was like, are you joking? She's like, let's go. So, uh, so she wanders, my fearless friend, wanders across the other side of the room, sticks her hand out to Richard. I wouldn't be surprised she tried to hug him because she always tries to hug people, whoever they were. But I suspect she probably stuck her hand out and said, hi, Richard, my name's Pam. And um, the conversation went along and eventually she said, uh, she invited him to come for tea, uh, and um, uh, he accepted, and um, he came to a tea, and as they talked, and as she explained something of God's love, he gave his life to Jesus. Are you surprised? Are you shocked that Richard gave his life to Jesus when he understood something of God's love? Well, I confess, the last part of that story was not true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let the, the tape be a record that that was not true. I hope that somebody's not stopped listening just before I said that. Um, it's all over the news. Um, but up until the point that she invited him to tea, that bit was true. 
And in fact, he was totally unnerved by her. So she said, can I have your email address so I can invite you for tea? And he was just about to give it to her, and he kind of, like, suddenly, kind of, it's almost like he realized what was happening, because she told him that she was a Christian, and he was like, he declined very politely the invitation to tea. But why would we have been shocked if that story was true? Why would we have been shocked or surprised if Richard had gone to tea with Pam and responded to God's expression of love given his life to Jesus in that moment? Would we be surprised if somehow someone is rocking up at Vladimir Putin's office today to express to him God's love and he gives his life to Jesus? Would we be surprised by that? Well, we would, wouldn't we? But why are we surprised by some people giving their life to Jesus? Richard is a renowned atheist, a prominent critic of religion, and has a stated opposition to religion. And it's a twofold opposition that he has to religion. The first is that religion is both a source of conflict and a justification for belief without evidence. The second issue is that he considers faith, which is belief that is not based on evidence, as one of the world's greatest evils. In his February 2002 TED talk entitled Militant Atheism, he urged all atheists to openly state their position and to fight the incursion of the church into politics and science. Just listen to that language. He describes himself as a scale of, on the scale of one to seven of belief as a 6.9. Because you can't categorically prove that God doesn't exist. So he leaves just a 0.1% chance that maybe, but pretty much he puts himself as a seven. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett are four well-known atheists, describing themselves as evangelical atheists because of their belief that religion is dangerous and should be rigorously challenged and refuted. It would be profoundly shocking to hear of any one of these men professing faith in Jesus. These men that I've just mentioned are nothing like Saul. They have completely different beliefs. But it helps to give a little glimpse as to why it was so shocking that Saul became a follower of Jesus. So shocking to the early church that this Saul that they'd heard about had become a believer. Could such a man as Saul choose to follow Christ? Acts chapter 9, and we're going to look at 1 to 31, but first of all, we're just going to look at verses 1 to 9. So, um, gentlemen, could you put the slide back one? That would be really helpful to the passage. Back. Great. Thank you. We're good. We're on track. Right. Are you with me? Richard Dawkins didn't become a Christian. Keep praying. But Saul is a different matter. So, chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Where are you, Lord? Saul asked. Sorry, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Saul's life and plan in this moment has been interrupted. As we know, Saul has been persecuting the early church. Uh, We see in chapter 8 how he starts with the leaders. He's present at Saul's stoning, and he gives approval to Saul's stoning. Um, He was a young man, one of the Pharisees, and clearly very, very powerful. And after Stephen's stoning, um, the whole church was persecuted throughout Jerusalem, and they were targeted. So going literally from house to house, uh, dragging out men and women from their houses and taking them to prison because they believed in this Jesus. Uh, widespread, energetic persecution. Paul was completely committed to wiping out anything to do with Jesus and the way and this early church. And as a result of the persecution that was happening in Jerusalem, uh, some of the believers, the young believers, scattered to other places, going to Judea and Samaria. And wherever they went, they told people about Jesus. I was just thinking about what Becky was saying earlier about the believers in Ukraine seeing this as an opportunity, even when they're scattered, as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus. And wherever they went, these young believers shared their love for Jesus and the truth about who Jesus is. And we see at the beginning here in chapter 9 that Paul is determined to wipe out this new movement not just to deal with them in Jerusalem, but wherever they went, he was going to hunt them down and send them to prison, wherever they were scattered. So his plans are to go to Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. And you'll see on the map here um, uh, how far that is for context. Uh, it's uh, about 150 miles. So, so this isn't an ancient map. This is what I did yesterday. Um, and uh, sadly, they have no option for a donkey You can walk, or you can drive, or you can get a train, but you can't get a donkey. But it's about 150 miles, and it would have been about a week's journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. And Paul was determined to go there because of what was going on in that city, to wipe out the church in that place. And so he goes to the high priest, he gets letters to give him the um, uh, permission to be able to to go and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Um, he's very determined. And, um, uh, and it's easy in here as to think about Paul as a terrible man doing terrible things. When we think about Saul or Paul, we're going to come to that in a moment, about his name. But when we think about him, we think, oh, he's a terrible person doing terrible things to these young believers. But what was in Paul's mind was that he was being a faithful devout Jew, faithful to God and his promises, trusting God's promises would come true. He was wholly committed to God's glory and to the honor of his name. That's why he was doing it, not because he just hated Christians, but because he was committed to God as a faithful follower, as a Jew, to God's name. And um, he trusted that God's promises about bringing the coming of his kingdom of injustice would prevail. Was this a conversion? So you'll see often in your Bibles it says Saul's conversion. 
and uh, I was listening to N.T. Wright talking a little bit about this, and, uh, and he was saying, actually, it's not very helpful to think about Paul's conversion at this point. Because when we think about conversion, we think about people going from one religion to another, or from not believing to believing, to being an atheist, to being a Christian, to being whatever to whatever. Um, but that's not what's really going on here. This was a profound realignment of Paul's understanding and his belief of what God's promises actually meant in the scriptures. Paul always believed in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was living in the narrative that all God's ancient promises, which we now read in the Old Testament, would come true, that he would renew the whole world, that he would renew the temple, that the coming Messiah would reestablish God's kingdom. He would have been mindful of the prophets of old like Elijah, who was a messenger of zeal, who dealt with the bad things that were happening with even violent means for the sake of God and his glory. And Paul was part of a movement at the time that was really committed to every Jew being committed to the law because the more faithful they were, the more they would hasten the um, coming of the Messiah. So Paul was concerned about what was going on with these, these young Jewish believers who were following this Jesus because they were not following the law and they were stopping the true Messiah from coming. Any Jew being unfaithful to the law needs to be dealt with decisively. The stakes were too high because they wanted the Messiah to come and the reestablishment of the kingdom. So they had to wipe out these young believers. Paul was a faithful, devout Jew. But his understanding of the scriptures were not accurate. He didn't understand that the Messiah had actually come. He thought it was a ridiculous idea that a Messiah would be crucified. The Messiah would come with power and glory, would reestablish God's kingdom and the temple and the nation of Israel. And these young believers were letting the side down. They were getting in the way of the, really the Jewish nation being faithful to God. These new fanatics, as far as he was concerned, were like the prophets of Baal in Elijah's time. So with this all going on, how would Paul pray? He gives um, a number of, of the commentators give a fascinating, fascinating insight into how Paul, being a devout Jew, would have had a life of prayer. Um, prayers would have been constantly, he would have been meditating constantly on the scriptures. And many have guessed that on his way to Damascus to deal with this renegade, unfaithful Jewish sect, um, Many are guessing that he was meditating on um, the vision in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1 and 2, where Ezekiel has a vision of um, a flaming chariot. And as Ezekiel raises, go and read Ezekiel 1 and 2 at some point, because it's fascinating to read that alongside this passage. <coughs> Ezekiel has, a, has this vision of these chariots and these whirling wheels and these crazy four-headed things. Um, and as Ezekiel raises his head, he sees the Lord. And as he does so, he falls, on his, uh, he falls down. And maybe Paul is meditating on this vision because he longs to see the Lord. Maybe that's what he was doing on his way to Damascus, sitting on a donkey for a week, pondering, meditating on the scriptures, meditating on this vision that Ezekiel had. 
But on his way, as he is meditating or, or whatever he's doing, he has this incredible encounter. <clears throat> Saul meets the risen Jesus. What an incredible moment. Everything that Paul assumed and committed his life's work to is shattered instantly in this encounter with Jesus. Can we go back one slide, please? Thank you. Um, everything is changed in this moment in the scripture where Paul meets the risen Jesus. We see in this that Paul didn't need any convincing about Jesus. There was no debate here with Jesus because he meets the risen Jesus himself. <clears throat> this changes Paul forever. It completely changes the trajectory of his life and what he was going to give his life to. It was a profound realignment of all that he believed. Everything he assumed up to this point was challenged and shifted and fundamentally altered by meeting Jesus. He'd believed that God's promises would be fulfilled by a Messiah who would overcome the Romans with power, would restore their national sovereignty. <clears throat> it would be strong, powerful, public, and glorious. He believed that Jesus was nothing and was dead. That's what he'd believed to this point. Jesus was dead. He was nothing. Some bloke that lived, but, and these people believed that he was alive, but really he was dead. And he did not believe that Jesus was God. Everything he believed about the coming Messiah and the restoration of the kingdom was turned upside down in this one moment of encounter with Jesus. He believed in a knight in shining armor, but what he discovered was a Galilean on a donkey. This is a revelation. Paul meets Jesus in all his glory and his grace. And in this moment, he discovers who Jesus really is, and everything is changed. And Paul spends the rest of his life coming to terms with understanding who Jesus is and helping the world be changed by encountering Jesus for themselves. We see in this passage, interestingly, how Jesus himself pursues Paul. Paul is not looking for Jesus. He is looking for the Messiah, but he wasn't looking for Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, Jesus, and Saul was changed in this moment. Paul didn't enter Damascus full of power and pride as he'd planned. He enters Damascus broken, blind, and humbled. Next slide, please. <clears throat> you see, there's who people think Jesus is and who he actually is. There's who Richard Dawkins thinks Jesus is and who he actually is. There's who your friends think Jesus is and who he actually is. There's who Paul or Saul thought Jesus it was and who he actually is. Who you once thought Jesus was and who he actually is. <clears throat> I remember um, my first, I'd heard about Jesus, um, but the first time I heard the gospel was in church and, um, and it was the first time I, I discovered that it was possible to know God in a personal way through Jesus. And so I gave my life to Jesus readily, joyfully. My life was changed that day I met Jesus. But it wasn't till the next Thursday when I, my friend invited me around to study the Bible with her uh, that I discovered that Jesus wasn't just the son of God. He wasn't just a child of God, but that actually Jesus was God himself. 
And remember that revelation, what? Jesus isn't just the son of God, he's actually God. It blew my mind. Um, and for me, there was that sort of start of discovery, which I still am getting to know who Jesus is today. I've known Jesus for 30-odd years. I'm still discovering more of who Jesus is today, the true Jesus. Because we can have an idea of who we think Jesus is, but who he truly is is a discovery that we have for the rest of our lives. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. When you choose to follow Jesus, as Saul becomes a follower of Jesus this day, we choose to follow Jesus, we choose to become a disciple, a person who is a learner, growing more to know and love Jesus, being in his word, understanding who Jesus is through his word, understanding Jesus is through being in fellowship with each other, being in prayer and living out his purposes. It's all about Jesus and about discovering him together for the rest of our lives. I wonder what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple to you. What does it mean to you to follow Jesus? I wonder if you know Jesus for yourself when you remember first meeting him, when you first discovered him in a very personal way as Saul does here. When did you first meet Jesus? Take yourself back to that point. And how have you discovered more of Jesus since then? How hungry you are, are you, to know more of Jesus? Who do you talk about Jesus with? With people who you know here, your fellowship? Do you talk about Jesus with each other? Do, do I talk about Jesus with you? Do you talk about Jesus with me? How do you talk about Jesus with those in your workplaces and places where you go that people don't yet know Jesus? Does your best friend pop up in conversation? Because for Paul, this moment completely changed his life. And all he talked about, you can see throughout scripture, was the person of Jesus. Because ultimately he discovered that power does not change the world. That it's only Jesus that changes the world. Um, I do want to notice something in this passage. Um, we often think of, you know, Saul becomes Paul. And there's sometimes a bit of a misunderstanding that we think Saul was the person that Saul was before he encountered Jesus, and Paul's the person that he becomes after he comes to know Jesus. But actually, this is not true. Paul is not, Jesus, um, uh, Paul is not Saul's Christian name. Uh, Saul was his name in Hebrew. So, in fact, we see in this passage that Jesus relates him as Saul. He calls him Saul. It's his Hebrew name. And he's not, relate, he's not called Paul until later on in um, Acts 13, when Paul's on his first missionary journey, that he's referred to as Paul. Because Saul, also known as Paul, or Paulus in Latin. So, it's just, just as a small thing here, sometimes we think of Saul becomes Paul because he becomes a Christian. It's actually just two names in two different languages. So, it's just important for us to remember that. So, let's keep moving on uh, to Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. We have to speed this up. So, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him uh, in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he, sa- he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. 
for he is praying. In the vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in his Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see, see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength. As we said earlier, Paul's reputation or Saul's reputation was strong amongst all the believers. They all knew him. Um, he was known to be, and in fact, some of the ways that at the beginning of this passage it talks about the words he uses, that he was like a ferocious beast in terms of his murderous threats. That's kind of how his reputation was. Um, and Ananias would not have welcomed the idea of going to see this Saul, who he believed was out to kill him. But he trusted Jesus. Um, and we see in this that Ananias turns up, he's he, obedient to what Jesus t- asked him to go and do. And he turns up and he places his hands on Saul. And what's the first word he says? It's a beautiful moment. He says, brother. That's just incredible. This person who's been the cause of, of murder and imprisonment of believers, uh, Ananias turns up, puts his hand on him and says, brother. Saul is now one of the family. And in this passage, we see that Ananias meets not just his spiritual needs, but his physical needs as well. He prays for him to receive the Holy Spirit. He baptizes him into the family, and he's given something to eat. And Paul receiving the Holy Spirit is so significant here. At the beginning of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, you will receive the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is going to go to the whole world. And at this point, Saul was going to be a significant instrument in God's hand to see that happen. As Ananias prays for Paul, he receives power and a totally new direction for his life. Saul is activated in a new way, by the Holy Spirit into a completely new mission from the mission that he'd set out to. Not killing people who follow Jesus, but introducing more people to him. Starting movements that would impact the whole world and still impact us today. Paul has a new family. He has the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him, and he has a new purpose to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. In this passage, we see that God's plan for starting with Jerusalem, but for Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit, uh, to receive Christ and the Holy Spirit, would Paul would be significant in that. And it's actually as Paul starts to relate to the Gentiles that we see his name changed. But I love this part of the passage where Paul becomes a part of the family, brother Saul. And he receives the Holy Spirit and he's given a new purpose. 
And that's true for us. As people who've responded to Jesus, we have a new family. We are family. I know we've gone through a really hard time as a church over the last months, but we are family. We're family. Can't, can't deny it. You can't ignore it. You can't walk away from it because we are family. And we have the Holy Spirit empowering our lives, changing us, making us more like Jesus, helping us to understand more of who Jesus is in our lives. We have the Holy, the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is here. The same Spirit that Paul received is here today. He is here. We talk about whether we welcome the Holy Spirit, but he's already here. But do we welcome him? And are we allowing the Holy Spirit to repurpose our whole lives, whatever our lives look like, whatever happens in our lives? Ukrainian brothers and sisters today did not ask to be in the midst of a war. But they're living as a family, part of our family, in the power of the Holy Spirit today. And God is repurposing their lives again today to help more people to discover the truth and the hope that is only in Christ. What was started here, this phenomenal passage in the Bible continues in our lives today. It's just sometimes I have to sit in that truth. This is not something that's abstract or separate from us. We're a continuation of what was started in this passage when Jesus revealed himself in an incredible way to Paul. So the last bit, um, let's crack on to two more slides, I think. The whole world, gospel for the whole world. Okay, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by, the night, by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him into the apost to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So we see how Saul is activated here. He's received the Holy Spirit. He's baptized. He's received his sight back. Um, he's healed. And he's gone from giving out murderous threats to anyone who followed Jesus to speaking only of Jesus and trying to convince as many people that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And we see shockwaves amongst the Jews who can't quite believe it. They can't quite believe that this young zealot Pharisee, who was 
committed to hastening the return of the true Messiah as they saw it by being true to the law was suddenly a follower of this Jesus and was convincing everyone um, of the truth of who he was. Interestingly, Paul only spends a few days in Damascus with uh, the believers and speaking of Jesus. And we actually find out in Galatia, at the beginning of Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that after this point, before he goes to Jerusalem, this is a passage that squeezes together actually our big chunk of time. Before he actually goes to Jerusalem, he goes to um, Arabia for three years. It's funny, you don't really see this in this passage. He doesn't just then jump from Damascus to Jerusalem. He actually goes off to Arabia for three years. Um, and we don't really know what he's up to in Arabia. Uh, but I suspect that he is studying the scriptures in a whole new way because of Jesus. And Jesus is preparing him for the ministry and the mission that he's calling him to, to the whole world. But eventually he um, returns to Damascus and then he goes to Jerusalem. And we see Paul is being threatened by the Jews when he returns to Jerusalem. Um, and the disciples don't really believe him. They don't really believe um, that he's not going to kill them or take them to prison, that he's actually become a follower of Jesus, full of skepticism. Imagine this. I think we can go to the next slide. Imagine this, um, Paul really being between these two worlds. Um, all his community, all his Jewish community, completely rejecting him and wanting to kill him. And the young believers uh, not accepting him because they're not convinced that Saul could become a follower of Jesus. It was so inconceivable to them. They didn't believe it. And this sense that Paul, I can, you know, I'm trying to kind of have that kind of human moment for Paul because sometimes we read the passage so fast that we kind of don't realize the person that Paul is sitting in this painful place of rejection and non-acceptance. But in his discovery of Jesus, it's too late for him. He can't go back. He can only go forward because of Jesus. But I love how we see um, how Barnabas advocates him, like Ananias advocates him. We see Barnabas advocating for Paul and gives testimony, actually, to Peter and James to what Paul had done. And I think Ananias and Barnabas demonstrate for me the importance of having fellow believers who are advocates in our lives, the importance of who is alongside us, speaking up for us, particularly when we are rejected or there is suspicion around us. Who do we have in our lives that speak up for us, who advocate for us? Even if it's costly and unpopular to advocate for, us, for a person, are we advocates for people in our lives? It's a small story, really, but one of the times when I think about being an advocate was when Paul and I were in youth ministry in the Northeast, and um, we had, there was a bunch of kids from the local estate um, that started coming to our church. And uh, they didn't really know the way to behave in church. They, you know, they hadn't read the memo of how you're meant to act in church. So they sat right at the front. They weren't like the, the other youth who sat right at the back. They sat right at the front in full view. And they spent most of it chatting about what was going on, talking to each other, playing with the banner that's, anyway just being a little bit disruptive. But they didn't let, they, this is just how they grew up. They were new to church and they, were, they weren't actually believers yet. Um, and um, <laughs> uh, the, the minister at the front of church, I won't obviously say who, um, reprimanded them in front of everybody. And um, Paul and I were horrified. And 
we're like, we've been trying ages to get these kids to church. We don't think they're going to come back now. Anyway, we realized that actually in that moment, it was our job to be their advocates in this place where people weren't really sure whether they, you know, they're really acceptable. You know, they weren't really welcomed into that place. And it was really, we felt really important and passionate that we needed to be their advocates in this place where they weren't really being accepted. It's a bit of a different scenario to what we're talking about here. But it does make me think, how are we advocates of people that don't really, they don't look like us or they don't talk like us or they don't think like us? Not that there isn't us, because we all think different things, we all look different, we all come from different backgrounds. But how important it is that we have advocates who speak up for those who aren't always welcomed, who aren't always accepted. We need to have advocates. I know I've needed advocates in my life, but we also need to be advocates for people. Particularly when people come to know Jesus and they are leaving what, is not what, they, what they know. Sometimes they're communities. There are places where people becoming Christians it's so, so abhorrent to the community that they were in that they have to find a new community where they are accepted. Will we be that community if people have to pay the ultimate price of following Jesus because they become rejected by the people they've come from? Will we be that community that, that does life with people, that accepts them, that welcomes them, that makes them family? So Paul had a strong ministry from the start. People kept trying to kill him because of his powerful ministry explaining Jesus to people. And the brothers took him to Caesarea, to the coast, uh, because he was under threat, and they send him off to Tarsus. And he actually goes to Tarsus for about seven to eight years uh, in somewhat kind of uh, quietness. We don't really know what he's doing then. So there's a number of years around this. In these short passages, there's actually a number of years um, and then we see at the very end there, it's this a season in the church where there was peace, it was strengthened by the Holy Spirit, it was encouraged, there was growth as people became Christians, and there was godliness, people being full of the Holy Spirit, uh, living in fear of the Lord. But that's really godliness, becoming more like Jesus. So this was the beginning of the church. Um, no opposition would stop the spread of the gospel. Jesus had come not just for the Jews, he'd also come for the Gentiles, and Paul was his key instrument to start that new movement into seeing the whole world having the opportunity to discover Jesus. And Paul ventures out on these crazy, crazy missionary journeys, imprisonments, strict wrecks, he does church planting, and eventually he loses his life. Paul's commitment was to Christ and to the other believers, but from the very beginning it was clear that this was going to be costly in his life. Many Christians around the world know that choosing to follow Jesus comes at a great cost. But in many respects it does for us all. Sometimes the cost looks more extreme, but there's a cost for us all when we choose to follow Jesus because we are no longer our own, but we are Christ's. We are under his lordship. As we look at Paul's life that begins here, this change as he's encountered Jesus, we see that his whole life becomes centered around Christ. It's all about Jesus. 
And as we choose to follow Jesus, our whole lives to be centered on Christ. It's always about Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. Jesus always first. We see also how Paul's life becomes powerful, not because of might, because he's able to imprison people, but because of the Holy Spirit who's living and active, not just in him, making him more like Jesus, but living and active in his ministry, helping people to discover Jesus. We see Paul's life is courageous. He is willing to take bold steps to go beyond his comfort zone for the sake of the gospel. But we see also that this is costly, that Paul's living a life for Jesus is costly and ultimately costs him his life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous um, theologian wrote that suffering was the badge of true discipleship. So Paul, who leaves Jerusalem at the beginning of this passage with the purpose of arresting fugitive Christians, returns to Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian himself. No person is too far from God that they can't know him. Richard Dawkins is not too far from God that he can't know him. Vladimir Putin is not too far from God that he can't know him. The people that you spend time with, you wonder how you could ever see them becoming a Christian. They're not too far from God that they can't know him. What every person needs is a revelation of Jesus and his love and his grace. And he has called us this incredible part to play to be people who can introduce people to this Jesus who we follow. Not to debate. Yes, we can debate. There's always room for debate. But ultimately, to help people to encounter the person of Jesus. That's what changed Paul's life when he encountered the risen Jesus. And that's what we have. We have Jesus. That's who we have to share with people, with boldness and courage. But it may cost us everything. I'm going to hand over to Sarah, uh, who's going to lead us in another song. But I'd like to pray as we do. Jesus, thank you that you have um, revealed yourself. Thank you for, um, for how you revealed yourself to Saul on the road to Damascus. And thank you for how you have revealed yourself to each one of us uh, at whatever point. And you are revealing yourself by your Holy Spirit in an ongoing way, making us more like you. Jesus, we want more people to have a revelation of who you are, that they might receive something of your grace today. Lord, we pray for people who are as opposed to you, that spend their life totally opposed to you. Lord, would you, um, would you by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, reveal yourself to those people and to those who um, just don't know. Lord, we pray for our friends and our family who don't yet know you, that you would reveal yourself to them. And would we be people who are prepared to um, live totally um, in abandonment to you and you alone. Amen.